For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. So this afternoon now in our ongoing study of Revelation, we are, uh, we've come to the end of chapter 11. So having arrived now at the end of chapter 11, we've also arrived at the end of this third cycle, uh, the cycle of the trumpets. And as we've arrived at the end of that third cycle, the end of that cycle presses us up against the end of the age. So we also see that cycle, which is covering the same time period as the other cycles, that time period between the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his return. Uh, But as we work through those cycles, we're also being pressed closer and closer and closer up against the end of the age. So we find that happening now at the end of the cycle of trumpets as the seventh angel is sounded. So the, the seventh angel is sounded and the blast of the seventh trumpet now at the end of the cycle, at the end of the age, indicates that the great day of his wrath has come. And the great day of of his wrath uh, brings judgment. At the time of the dead, they should be judged. And a day of judgment that involves both, as we've seen, both retribution and reward. It's a day wherein wherein he should reward his servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear his name, both small and great. And it's a day in which he will destroy those who destroy the earth. And he will do so with the brightness of his coming. It's a day of reward and a day of retribution. Now, we've discussed this this great day of God's judgment over the past couple of weeks. And in discussing that day, we've discussed the day in terms of its requirement. In terms of its requirement, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We've discussed that day in terms of its recompense. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we are uh, going to be repaid for everything we've done in the body. If you listen to that text, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Our justification, our justification is absolutely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But in the day of judgment, as we've discussed, there will be a role that our works will play in judgment. We've discussed that. Now we are recompensed on that day, if you will. We are paid back, that's what the word means. Paid back for the things that we've done in the flesh. As we've seen for believers, that includes absolutely no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But rather than condemnation, looking at several applicable texts, Paul refers to... um, a loss of reward uh, for that one who has uh, not walked faithfully or is not built on that foundation, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, as they should. They've built with wood and hay and straw instead of gems and precious stones. Uh, Paul speaks of a loss there, but it's a loss of reward. There is therefore now no condemnation. We've looked at the proceedings of that day as a kind of ratification. And in looking at that, we've considered the parable of the talents how each one is rewarded for his work. Uh, We looked at the illustration of King Solomon in his judgment over the two harlots uh, to see how um, faith is evidenced by our works. So we've looked at that day as a kind of ratification, a ratification of genuine faith. And lastly, we've discussed the day in terms of two distinct responses, two responses. The nations are enraged and the people of God are rejoicing. The people of God give him thanks, praising him, worshiping him uh, because he has taken his great power and he has reigned. So as we conclude our work now through verse 18, notice then how these two groups 
uh, the, the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. Notice how these two groups are described. Verse 18 says, the time has come for the dead to be judged, a time wherein God will reward his servants, the prophets and the saints, um, and he'll destroy those who destroy the earth. Right? These two groups are described. Now first, the first group is described by that word servant. We're described as his servants. Uh, we're included with the prophets, uh, the prophets and the saints described as his servants. The Greek word for that word is doulos. And it, it's a word that means slave. We've talked about that word occasionally, uh, but I think it bears a good reminder for us to consider that word tonight in the context of Revelation 11. We are the Lord's slaves. Now, there are elsewhere in scripture where we're, just, we're um, mentioned as the Lord's freedmen. We've been set free from our bondage to sin. We've been set free from our bondage to death. Nevertheless, we've been set free from being slaves of sin to being, becoming slaves of God, slaves of righteousness. We discussed that when we went through Romans chapter six together. So we are, we're described in scripture as the Lord's slaves. We are his bond servants. Now, if you're a Christian, you delight to hold that title. <laughs> uh, there's a, a tremendous amount of obviously uh, just horrific, um, horrific uh, baggage that accompanies that terminology but that's at the, the hands of sinful and godless men acting in history uh, on that phraseology. But um, that is, all of that malice is foreign to the concept of slavery for God's people. And we'll explain a little more why. If you're a Christian, you delight in that word. The apostle Paul delighted in considering himself a slave of God or a slave of Jesus Christ. We long from the heart to be more and more a faithfully devoted slaves than we are, amen? That's the heart of the Christian. I wanna serve him in that way. Now, Paul, for example, he reveled in the term. He gloried in the term as he thought of it. Everywhere he introduces himself as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter one, verse one, Paul, a bondservant. The word there is doulos. It's a slave. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, apostle separated to the gospel of God. In Galatians chapter one, verse 10, he is a slave of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter one, verse one, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. So Paul delighted to think of himself as Lord's slave. And I think one of the fundamental reasons why you and I delight in that terminology or why Paul would delight in that terminology is because that's how Jesus Christ came into this world to save us, uh, to live and to die for us. Philippians chapter two, verse seven, describing the work of Christ. Paul says there that Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, taking the form of a doulos, a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. The use of that word slave communicates both association and attitude. It communicates both association and attitude. In terms of association, a slave is someone whose life, actions, words, deeds, ambitions are all completely shaped by the will of another. They're, in a sense, entirely possessed by, owned by another. A slave is someone who is holy and entirely possessed by a master. Now, that kind of ownership took place in four basic ways in the first century. One, you were born into slavery. Two, you sold yourself into slavery. Three, you were taken captive, you were made a slave. And four, you were purchased. And the Bible uses all four of these descriptors 
of the Christian, of the one who has come to place faith in Jesus Christ. Each of these concepts is used in the Bible to describe our relationship to God or to our, our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ as one of being his doulos, his slave. First, you were born into slavery. Now, contrary to those who champion free will, those Arminians who idolize free will, everyone born in Adam is born a slave to sin. They may champion free will, but you were born a slave to sin. Everyone born again in the last Adam is a slave of him. Those in the first Adam are born slaves to sin in their identification with the first Adam. Those who are born again in union with the last Adam, the great Adam, are born again as slaves of him. And think about that in our study of Romans 6 alone. Okay, Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Those in union with Christ are no longer slaves of sin. That means that you once were a slave of sin, right? Romans chapter 6, verse 18. Having been set free from sin, you became a slave of righteousness, right? Chapter 6, verse 22. Having been set free from sin, you were its slave, you became slaves of God. What's being communicated to us by Paul in Romans 6? We're all slaves of sin. We're born into slavery. We're born into slavery. The question is not about your presumptuous freedom, right? It's not about your freedom. The question is about whose slave are you? Whose slave are you? You were born into slavery. Now, second, you were certainly born a slave, but you've also sold yourself into slavery. You've sold yourself. The, con the concept of slavery involves our will. It involves our volition, is described as voluntary. Again, from Romans chapter six, look at verse 16. And this is active, listen. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? So whoever you present yourself to obey, you're going to present yourself to someone to obey, right? Whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. Oh, I don't present myself to anyone to obey anyone. I'm no one's slave. You're a, sin to, you're a slave to sin leading to death. Right You've just presented yourself as a slave of sin leading to death. There's only two options. There is no middle ground, right? You were born into this slavery, but you've also volitionally sold yourself into this slavery by giving yourself over to sin. Paul says you have presented yourself as a slave to obey. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? So you were certainly born as a slave to sin, but you haven't been slaving away as a sinner against your will. Um, you would acknowledge that, wouldn't you? Before you were converted, you weren't sinning against your will. Uh, you were sinning in accord with your will. Why were you sinning in accord with your will? Because you are by nature a sinner. Uh, you were born into slavery. The notion of free will just doesn't fly when it comes to this issue of slavery to sin. But also, in addition to slaving away, not slaving away as a sinner against your will, you've also, been, you've also sold yourself into slavery to have your sin. You've willfully done that. You wanted your sin, even though you knew it would cost, your, cost you your life. That's the end of Romans chapter one, right? Or into Romans chapter two, right? They know that those who practice such things are deserving of death. The believer's slavery to Jesus Christ, his slavery to obedience is also voluntary. Verse, uh, chapter six, verse 17. But... In contrast to the one who has sold himself into slavery to sin, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, now you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. 
You were passive, set free. You did not free yourself. You didn't simply decide to walk away from it. You were delivered from your slavery. Deliverance, again, speaks of divine action. It speaks of divine action in contrast to human will. It is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs. It is of God who shows mercy. So we are born into slavery. We have certainly sold ourselves into slavery. Three, someone may be captured and made a slave. Uh, They were taken prisoner. The Bible describes the lost as those who have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. Uh, This would have been commonly understood in the first century. Roman victories in the first century uh, on the battlefield ensured that thousands, thousands at that time were taken captive and brought into the slave markets of the Roman Empire. Uh, They were captured and made slaves. Uh, Paul joyfully refers to himself as the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does that several places in scripture. In particular, in Ephesians chapter three, verse one, he describes himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ in Philemon, verse nine, a prisoner of the Lord in 2 Timothy chapter one, verse eight. Paul describes himself as a man who has been taken captive by Christ. Philippians chapter three, verse 12. Not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on, Paul says, that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ has also laid hold of me. Referring to his own conversion there, Paul says that Jesus Christ laid hold of him, Catalambano. It means he seized him. He arrested him, right? He took him prisoner as it were. That's the way that Paul uh, describes his Damascus Road conversion. Uh, The Lord took Paul as his prisoner, as it were. He seized him. Fourth, the most common way that someone becomes a slave was through the payment of a purchase price. In reference to the metaphor of slavery in the New Testament, the most common word used for this uh, payment of a price is the word uh, that we translate as redemption. It's the word agorazo. Agorazo is a, a commercial term and it refers to the payment made for property in the marketplace. If you're gonna buy something, you agorazo, you redeemed it. So those, uh, if you think about the use of that term, uh, there are multiple places in scripture where that term is used of us. There's been a purchase price that has been made for us. Uh, It is the high, the immeasurably, infinitely high cost of our own redemption. And that is the blood, the very life of the son of God. Those worshiping the Lord in Revelation chapter five, if you remember that text, they sing a new song to praise Jesus Christ saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you, Jesus Christ, were slain and have redeemed us. You have purchased us to God by your blood. That's the payment of a price out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, right? Every tribe, tongue, people and nation are referred to as out of the mass of humanity. And he has purchased us out of that mass of humanity. He is agarazzo, he's redeemed us. And he has done that by the, with the shedding of his own blood. The payment of the price was his own, his own life. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Uh, you think you are on a, an autonomous person? You are sadly mistaken, right? You are not your own. That, that's, that should go without saying, right? We were created. We were created. We didn't create ourselves. We've been created anew. It's what Paul is specifically speaking about here. And we did not create ourselves anew. We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. There's been a transfer of ownership. He says there, 1 Corinthians 6, you were bought at a price, 
Therefore, you have responsibility. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In other words, that speaks of possession. Uh, You do not possess your body and your spirit as an autonomous source of life yourself. You do not possess your body and your spirit. They are God's. When you think about our slavery in these terms, in all of the ways that the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased us, all of the ways that the Lord Jesus Christ has saved us, the, what God has done to redeem us to himself. We, who, we were slaves to sin and the Lord has freed us out of bondage and saved us to an immeasurably gracious and compassionate master. And if you think about slavery in those terms, then the notion of free will just dampens the delight, doesn't it? Just dampens the delight that, no, 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 I'll do that, right? <laughs> it's going to be my decision. I'll take care of that. I'll make this, I'll do it. I'm the one who's got to exercise. It's just, it's the, the delight of the Christian that God does all of that for his people, right? God does all of that for us. The Christian delights to be a doulos, delights. He delights in the reality of it. We have been bought at an immeasurably high price. God gave his own son, his own son. A sister and I were talking last week about the love of God, like the love of God, the father and how the love, God, the father did not spare his own son. He loved us to the extent that he gave everything, including his beloved son to redeem us. That's how much he loves us. And we are his doulos. We are his doulos. So the reality of it is our deliverance has been secured by another at the payment of an impossibly high price. The hymn that we sing, and I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank now on the, which one that is. Um, but it talks about that uh, Im- impossibly high price. My value fixed, my ransom Paid, right? the, the, um, the wonders of the cross, the wondrous cross. My value fixed, my ransom paid. What is that value that's been fixed? The very life of the son of God, Jesus Christ. Um, my ransom paid, my ransom paid by his substitutionary work on my behalf on the cross. It's, we just delight, delight in those realities. And that is to delight in being a doulos of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also delight, not only in the reality of it, we, we delight in the blessedness of it, the blessedness of it. We've been delivered from being held captive by Satan to do his will, and we've been delivered over to infinite grace, to exceeding kindness, to infinite mercy and goodness and love, and to our master who is love. We have been delivered over to him. It's just the reality of it, the blessedness of it, the Christian delights to be considered a doulos, a servant, a bondservant of God, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, a bondservant of of righteousness, as Paul describes in Romans chapter six. So that description in Revelation 11 is one of divine association. It, It associates us with God, with his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and with his spirit, the one who works within us. But that association also leads to a distinctive attitude. And I would say at first, it's an attitude of delight, delight. And that delight runs in both directions so that we understand that. God delights over us, his servants. When that day comes, he's appointed that day, a day on which he will reward 
his servants, the prophets and the saints. God delights to reward them. God delights to, uh, for that day to come and for his servants to be rewarded. Revelation eleven eighteen. the time has come that he should reward them. And why is that? Because we are adopted sons, joint heirs with Christ. We are sons in his household. We've been given an inheritance with his son. Isaiah chapter 62, verse five, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That attitude of delight, God delights in his own doulos, but we also delight to serve him as his devoted slaves, don't we? Paul says, the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So in Revelation 11, verse 18, the time of the dead has come that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Notice here also in Revelation 11, that his doulas now are specifically described as his prophets and saints. They're grouped together there. We'll see that grouping several times now between now and the end of the book. We'll see it again in Revelation 16 during the, the bowl judgments. There in chapter 16, verse four, uh, the third angel pours out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water because, verse six, those who dwell on the earth have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. That coupling again, right? And God is pouring out his judgment upon those who dwell on the earth because they have shed the blood of his prophets and saints. He is, they have shed the blood. They've persecuted his people. These are his persecuted ones. And those who persecute them will be held to account. Uh, there's a text in the New Testament that uh, exemplifies this for us. Look at 2 Thessalonians with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And you see this back-to-back uh, -back in the same context here, which I think is helpful. God comes to judge. He's going to judge the wicked. Uh, and it's uh, in saving his own people from that judgment, he saves them through judgment to the glory of his name. That's our theme from the last couple of weeks, God's glory and salvation through judgment. But as he's judging the wicked, he's also rewarding his people. These things come together. He is judging those who persecuted his people and rewarding his persecuted people. First, our second Thessalonians chapter one, look at verse three. We're bound to give, uh, to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward uh, each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. That's a good biblical, healthy way to consider our own sufferings and persecutions and difficulties, right? For which you also suffer since, verse six, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. That's a righteous thing for God to judge those who trouble us. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So in other words, those two things come 
they often come together. There's judgment upon the persecutors and reward and salvation and deliverance for those whom they have persecuted. Revelation chapter 18, verse 20, where John says, rejoice over her, O heaven, and literally you saints, apostles, and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. He includes those groups together again um, as his persecuted people. In verse 24 there, in Revelation 18, verse 24, Babylon is cast down because in her was found the blood of prophets and saints. Do you think that God cares about his persecuted people? Absolutely he does. Absolutely he does. I'm reminded of God's pledge to wipe Amalek off the face of the earth because the Amalekites, uh, led by Amalek, uh, uh, attacked Israel's rear guard coming out of Egypt, attacked their weak, attacked those who were uh, straggling sort of behind uh, the camp. Um, And so God saw that as a particularly just grievous offense and pledged to wipe them out of existence, which he he did. Um, The Lord will, it's right, he's just. Uh, He will judge the wicked and he uh, takes particular care and concern with the suffering that his own people go through. Um, His people are beloved, do you see? Beloved, we're precious in his sight. Uh, It'd be like someone who was attacking your son or daughter, right? It's, it's, uh, or attacking your spouse, you wouldn't stand for it. Uh, God is going to judge those who persecute his people. We are identified on the other side with prophets because we carry God's prophetic word to the nations. Babylon associates us with those prophets by persecuting those sent to her with the gospel. We go to Babylon as it were with the gospel and Babylon you know, assaults and persecutes us because we go to her with the, the gospel and then Babylon is cast down in judgment. These, this, this persecuted group of people, these are those who in verse 18, fear God's name. These are not those who respond in rage to God's word, verse 18, but those who respond in reverential awe worship, devotion, they respond with godly uh, fear, a fear of God's name. And that's both small and great. It's a way of saying all of them. It's a merism, a figure of speech. It's like saying uh, from the top of your head to the soles of your feet, from start to finish, from beginning to end. It's a merism, right? So saying this both small and great, it's a way of saying every one of God's people, every single one of them, rich and poor, tall and short, young and old, men and women, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, all of them, um, God will deliver. Then these slaves, these saints, these prophets, those who worship him and serve him, both small and great, those who will be, those who will be the blessed beneficiaries of his eternal reward in the day of judgment are distinguished in verse 18 from those who will be destroyed. Those who themselves are destroyers. This is another example of Lex Talionis, retributive justice. The destroyers will meet with destruction. They're described as those who destroy the earth. The praise in verse 17 is described as a response to God the Almighty taking his great power and reigning. God takes his great power and reigns, and so they offer praise and worship. God has established his kingdom upon the earth, and just as his kingdom, the everlasting kingdom, involves a regenerate people, his everlasting kingdom will also involve a regenerate earth. 
That's why in Matthew, the Lord Jesus Christ refers to it as the regeneration, the regeneration. We are new creations in Christ and there will be a new heavens and a new earth in the regeneration. The curse will be entirely reversed when those who have destroyed the creation with their sin are finally themselves destroyed. Order will be ushered in on the ash heap of disorder. What we see around us now, brothers and sisters, is disorder. God's created order. And even better than, even more so than what we see depicted in Genesis, God's new created order will be put in place. God's new created order will be restored. Do we see the effects of sin and disorder on the creation? Do you see it? Absolutely. You got to literally be blind not not to see it. We absolutely see it. And we see that very disorder, that very disorder is often purposed by God as judgment upon those who destroy the earth. Famines, right? Pestilence, drought, earthquakes, fires, volcanoes. Just this week, they were evacuating Reykjavik, you know, because of an impending eruption there. Um, absolutely, we see the effects of sin on creation. Uh, this devastation all points to the reality, the reality of sin and death, the reality of God's impending judgment. That's the reality that these signs, if you will, are all pointing to. Uh, Whether you have eyes to see remains to be seen. Uh, That's not like what's not being said here. This is not like the fake, counterfeit, moralistic, hypocritical, fear-mongering, virtue-signaling climate alarmists (laughs) who look at all these realities and they presume in their ignorance that they know exactly what the cause of all those things are and how to fix it. There is an answer. There is an answer to all those calamities. It isn't found ultimately in humans producing carbon. It's found ultimately in humans producing sin. That's where the the cause of all this has come from. Doesn't Paul say in Romans chapter eight that the, the earth has been subjected to futility by God who subjected it, but it's been subjected in hope. There's a hope of a restoration coming but it's all related to sin entering the world and death through sin. It's what the Bible teaches us. Men do in fact produce pollutants. That's true. Men do in fact destroy the earth in pursuit of greedy gain, in pursuit of profit. That's true. But that's all man's sin. And creation ultimately has been devastated by the ravages of man's sin. So our people physically, temporally, are people destroying the earth? Yes, they are. We're destroying the earth. Yes, Revelation eleven eighteen suggests that their destruction of the earth is a contributing factor in their own destruction. But those who destroy the earth end up suppressing that truth. They start looking for other root causes. We're not the cause of all this destruction and devastation. It's the temperature has gone up by one one hundredth of one degree. And that's why we have wars in East Africa, right? (laughs) Um, They're looking for other root causes. Uh, The root cause, the Bible says, is man's sin. The creation has been subjected to futility, Romans chapter eight, verse 20. But the creation itself is going to be delivered from its bondage to corruption. Isn't that what Paul says there? Released from its bondage into the glorious liberty of the children of God. When in that day, God destroys those who destroy the earth. The salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ is a cosmic salvation, is a cosmic deliverance. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. It is in the regeneration that the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory. 
So verse 17, Revelation 11, verse 17, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then verse 19, the temple of God was opened in heaven. The ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. There were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. That language should portend the end, right? It points us to the end. It's in the vision given to the apostle John that John then looks to heaven and he sees the coming of the divine judge. You know, he sees the courtroom of heaven, the heavenly sanctuary open. John looks, verse 19, the temple of God was opened in heaven. When the heavenly sanctuary is opened to the sight of John in the vision, there are two realities that he records there. One, he notes the presence of the ark of his covenant, right? You notice that? The ark of his covenant, God's covenant. So he sees the ark there. And two, he records flashes of lightning, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and hail. That should all be reminiscent to us of, what, what, do you, what does that remind you of? It should remind you of Sinai, doesn't it? And God atop the mountain, as it were, with flashes of lightning, fire, smoke like a furnace. It will here be uh, that mankind will be now brought before the judge. Revelation 20 gives us more detail with respect to that. If you look at Revelation 20, look there at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged. When all this happens, this is the time, as it says in Revelation 11, this is the time, the time has come that the dead should be judged. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That physical death is just a first death, right? There's a spiritual death, physical death, but there's an eternal death, a second death. The Ark of his covenant has, in the Bible, signified his presence in covenant faithfulness with his people. It signifies the presence of God. The seat of his mercy, the mercy seat sat atop the Ark. The Ark contained the words of the covenant, the words of his covenant, Manna from the wilderness, Aaron's rod that budded, both contained within the ark, showing God's covenant faithfulness. These were all tokens of God's mercy, God's grace to his people. And his presence was the greatest mercy of all. His presence was said to dwell between the cherubim. That's what the ark represented, the very presence of God. The ark, in essence, was the throne. It's described as a mercy seat atop the ark. Right? So the ark, in essence, is... God's throne, the throne of his righteous judgments. Uh, it sat in the most holy place, the throne room of God, as it were, behind the veil until Jesus Christ and his propitiation as our great, great high priest rent that veil from top to bottom in his own blood. And he sprinkled his own blood upon the Ark of the Covenant in atonement uh, for his people, as it were. From the promises contained in his word, to the propitiatory work of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, a sight of the Ark of the Covenant signifies the very presence of Almighty God and his presence ruling and reigning among his people as king and priest. 
So not only the presence of God in mercy and grace, but also the presence of God in victory, the presence of God in judgment over his enemies. So the sight of the ark in the vision of John signifies both the deliverance and the salvation of his people and the destruction of God's enemies, victory over God's enemies. If you remember, the priests would carry the ark before the people, right? When the people moved, when they were going into the land to take Jericho, the priests preceded the camp with the Ark of the Covenant. They were the first to put their feet in the water, waters of the Jordan. Uh, the Ark preceded them to conquest. The Ark preceded them to victory. And the walls of Jericho come crumbling down. Amen? So it's there around the site of the Ark of his covenant in the heavenly sanctuary that John sees around the ark and around the throne room of the temple, he sees all these signs of Sinai then. He sees lightnings, hears lightnings, uh, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, great hail. And there are connections throughout Revelation, there are connections throughout the Bible to God pouring out his judgments like he did against Pharaoh and against Egypt. That, those judgments, those plagues against Egypt, again, are typological of God's many judgments throughout redemptive history, but of God's ultimate judgment against the wicked. Uh, these, that Egyptian um, judgment, typological of ultimate judgment. God, in visiting his people upon their deliverance, visits judgment upon the Egyptians. Now, God takes uh, Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness of Sinai. And in the wilderness of Sinai, the, the people of God are brought into the presence of God, as it were, at the mountain. There is at the mountain, the blast of the trumpet, flashes of lightning, the mountain quaked, smoke poured out like a furnace out of the top of the mountain. The people quaked. They heard the audible voice of God. Even it says of Moses, I think it's Hebrews 13, that his knees quaked, that he was terrified. And it paints a picture, doesn't it? God says he's going to put the fear of him before their eyes that they might not sin against him. So think about that with me and think about this sight of the Ark of the Covenant in the throne room of heaven, as it were, and these cosmic signs that take place in the heavens, lightnings and noises, thunderings and earthquake and great hail. The people had been delivered out of their bondage in Egypt. God had just destroyed destroyed the greatest concentration of man's power ever assembled on the earth at that time. If you think about it, Egypt was a world power and God wiped them out, <laughs> brought the waters of the Red Sea over on top of them, killed that army in Pharaoh, right? God just destroyed the power of the greatest superpower on earth at that time. Pharaoh himself had declared himself to be a God among men. Pharaoh declared himself to be a God. Every one of those, their so-called gods was directly targeted by each of the plagues that God poured out on Egypt. Did you realize that? Each of those plagues directly targets a false God of Egypt. God showing his power over those false gods. They are nothing, nothing, right? And God uh, executes his victory over them. Not only over their little fake gods, not only over Pharaoh, not only over the Egyptians, the army, they were all entirely, entirely powerless against him. Entirely powerless. Every one of them was summarily executed under a sentence of divine judgment. So then, this God meets Israel at Sinai. <laughs> right? You can imagine the, 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 that that scene, we go out into the wilderness, we go out to Sinai, there's the mountain and God comes in power upon the mountain. 
He's not only their gracious savior. He's not only one who just delivered them out of their bondage in Egypt. He is the judge over all the earth. He is the ruler over all creation. He is the conquering warrior priest king. So as they stood at the foot of the mountain, the, ch- the children of Israel encountered that God. And it was that God who is now bringing them into covenant with himself. When David um, sought to move the ark back to Jerusalem, if you remember the story, there in 1 Samuel, the ark is captured. Right? And the ark is with the Philistines for a period of time, right? Well, David, when David establishes a stronghold at Zion, uh, David's going to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. He's going to build a tent uh, for the ark. Um, but David neglected it. We'll say in uh, uh, First Chronicles, I believe it is, it, that David did not consult God on the proper way of dealing with the ark. He neglected to consider proper order. There was a proper way that the ark was to be transported. David didn't consider that. He put it on a, a cart that was being pulled by oxen, not the way the ark was to be transported. And one of the oxes, oxen stumbled and Uzzah reaches up his hand to steady steady the ark, right? Um, and Uzzah was struck dead. Uzzah was struck dead. Only the priests were carried to carry the ark. Only the priests consecrated, right? And they were to do so using the poles that were made to carry it with. Well, that event frightened David. Uh, David feared when that happened to Uzzah and said to himself, how can I bring the ark into Jerusalem? How can I bring the ark to me? So he had them turn aside into the house of Obed-Edom and leave the ark in the house of Obed-Edom. Well, the people at Sinai in similar fashion were afraid, like absolutely knee-knocking, terrified. And why is that? (laughs) Because they had no more right in and of themselves to stand before that God than the Egyptians did. You and I have no more right in and of ourselves to stand before God than any of those Egyptians did. We're not entitled to this. Somehow we deserve these things. We have no more right. How is it safe for them to draw near to God at Sinai? How is it How is it safe for them to cling to him in covenant? How is it safe for us to draw near to the presence of God? Well, the answer to that is God himself, right? God's own sovereign election, God's own determined, decreed purpose, God's own sovereign will and good pleasure. The promise that God had made to their father, Abraham, his own grace and mercy provided through the atoning work of his own son as signified in the Passover lamb to Israel. In the day of God's judgment, Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, there will be spiritual Egyptians there and spiritual Israelites there. Which can't we be in? God has made provision for our sin. Amen? We have to respond with faith in him. God's prophets, when we think about those categories, prophets and his saints, God's prophets all warned that this day of judgment would come. All warned that this day would come. We read about it throughout the Bible. I'm thinking in particular, of the prophet Haggai in chapter two, verse six. Listen to this from Haggai chapter two, verse six. When Judah returned from exile in Babylon and they were growing despondent in rebuilding the temple, right? When when, um, Judah returned, they're growing despondent. Verse six, thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations 
You see the, the presence of those eschatological signs, those cosmic kinds of disturbances. He's going to shake the earth. Right? There's going to be earthquakes. They shall come to the desire of all nations, Lord Jesus Christ. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. We know that temple to be his people. <laughs> a new heavens and a new earth. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple this temple that will be erected, if you will, uh, in that day, right, the day of his restoration, shall be greater. The glory of that temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. He's talking about eschatological peace. He's talking about that peace coming at the end of the age, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, at the end of the third cycle, right? The New Testament writers warn that the day is coming. They warn this way. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Everything's shaken, right? We see the, those signs of ultimate judgment. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. How should we respond then to these things? Remember this, verse 18. You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, to blackness and darkness and tempest, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be show, spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Hebrews 12 there. You've not come to that mountain. That's not the mountain that you've come to. But, verse 22, in contrast, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this precious promise. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us by your spirit to persevere. Uh, preserve us in grace and in mercy, Lord, we pray. Uh, bring us, as it were, to that mount on that day when Jesus Christ returns and cause your people to revel in, rejoice in your name, those who fear you, both small and great. I pray, Lord, that you would pour out your judgment upon the wicked, pour out your justice and dispense and discharge with sin permanently forever, Lord. We pray that that would be done quickly for your glory, for your great name's sake, Lord. I pray, usher in everlasting righteousness, that you would sit atop a seat atop your throne in Zion, your holy king on your holy hill. Magnified and glorified in it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.